Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth, with the goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the world. Please share any feedback you have and leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That could help others find the podcast and inspire them to take a chance and give it a try. And if you're listening to this through an app on your phone, be sure to visit austinarttalk.com on your computer to get the full effect of each episode's webpage and to follow the links provided that are relevant to the guests and what we talk about. And if you are finding value in these interviews, there are a few ways you can support me and the weekly production of the podcast that are listed on the support page of the website. Madeline Irvin uses a hypersaturated salt solution to draw and paint works on paper that reference the ocean and often try to address issues around climate change and the importance of buffer zones. Beyond the issues, these salt paintings and drawings are beautiful and fascinating simply as works of art on their own. She has always been curious and very much into reading, and her upbringing simultaneously gave her a love of art and of nature. Those traits have kept opening doors for her and have helped her learn about herself and the world. In addition to being an artist, Madeline has also worked many other jobs in the arts, including administration, teaching studio art and art history, being a curator, and as an arts writer and critic. There is a lot of wisdom in this interview, and I was excited to sit down with Madeline, knowing the breadth of her experience in the arts. If you can, be sure to check out her current exhibition, Buffer Zone, in Fort Worth, Texas, from July 6th until the 27th of 2018. And you can check out more of her work at MadeleineIrvin.com. Here's Madeline. So Madeline Irvin, thanks for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I wanted to make sure I got your name pronounced correctly. <laughs> so I don't know, where should we start? Do you want to start at the beginning and tell us about kind of the origins of your artistic life? I would, because uh, I was born in Manhattan, mm -hmm. and I had two older sisters. And when my sisters went to school, my mother and grandmother would walk me in a stroller to either the Met or the Modern. Mm. And so every week as a child, I went to the Met or the Modern. That's amazing. And so I got to look at all this incredible art from, you know, two feet up. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and as I grew, uh, that was really important to me. I would continue going to the museums on my own, no matter what city I was in. And at that time, the labels for the art were just so wonderful. They gave you a history of the person and connected you with uh, looking at it in different ways, uh, or not, you know, maybe it didn't connect you to looking at it, maybe it just let you look at it, yeah. and gave it a context in which that work was seen and made. Did you imagine at that time that that was a world that you could inhabit? Or did it seem like some other place like being an artist or creating art? I didn't think about being an artist at, at that time. <laughs> I went to uh, as, a, as a kid, something that had an art project. 
and we were finger painting at like age three. Yeah. And I just loved all the colors. I just mixed them all together. And then all of a sudden I had brown. Yeah. You know, I needed, <laughs> I needed like Gauguin to tell me I needed to add white to, yeah. you know, like make the tones or something. Right. <laughs> but it was like, I thought, oh my God, I had something nice and it's gone. Ah. <laughs> so I, I thought I really had no artistic talent at all. Wow. And when I was five, my parents uh, got uh, what we called then a country place, uh, 30 miles north of New York City in Croton-on-Hudson, New York. Mm -hmm. And we lived, our house was three miles outside of town. Uh, The last house on a dirt road, there were nine houses, I think, at that time on the road. Everybody owned two acres or more. Mm-hmm. And the person that we uh, fronted up against at the end of that road owned 26 acres because he loved birds. Oh. And that was a bird sanctuary. Oh, wow. His own bird sanctuary. Yeah. And uh, so we lived in the middle of the woods. Nature was always really important to me. We had both rivers flowing on either side of Manhattan. You had Central Park, which was a larger area of green. So when we moved out there, it was really wonderful. And we we were out there just for uh, weekends, summers, and holidays until I was eight. And then we lived there full time. At the end of the summer, they said, we're not going back. Oh, wow. So it was a wonderful place to grow up both those places. So you had and, nature, but then you didn't have the museums anymore. As much. Well, I'd get on the train. Okay. Not, not at age eight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I was a teenager before I started hopping on the train and seeing the museums once in a long while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're growing up in this beautiful natural setting. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And you feel like that has pretty much influenced your whole life, your work? Both those things. Mm. That's that's my core. And is there anything else, or do you want to just continue with your timeline of your life, or is it anything notable to talk about? Well, I went to art school a little bit later in life, and when I uh, went to the Maryland Institute College of Art, wonderful art school, they have a tradition of plein air painting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd be out in the landscape painting, and uh, it was a wonderful thing because we were all together. Now, a single uh, woman in the middle of the landscape in uh, Baltimore is not a safe thing. So in that way, it felt like I couldn't really continue that. Mm-hmm. And in cities, which is where I lived at that time, it was hard to find those park spaces or areas and feel safe like you said and and feel safe but at the same time as a senior i went to a residency program uh, that was in walpack center in new jersey and uh two or three art students from all of the nine art schools at the time in the country uh were there and we were there for a whole semester they had artists coming in and and it was wonderful to just be in nature for that period of time. But then getting back uh, to Baltimore, it didn't feel like it was something that I could really continue to do. And the other part of it was that it had nothing to do with contemporary art of the time. And so I think I, I paid attention to the contemporary art of the time and just tried to make my way there. But 
it was still, at that point in time, it was still learning a lot. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, that's something that has continued for me. I think that the reason I make the work that I do now is because I'm curious about the world. And I do reading. And uh, it was reading about the ocean that kicked off my work on the ocean in mm-hmm. um, 2013 when when I had a year and a half where I didn't have to work. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about the ocean, though, I think it's interesting that you live in the middle of Texas. <laughs> what do you make of that? <laughs> well, I, I, I two things. Uh, one is uh, everywhere used to be under the ocean. Yes. You know, the ocean especially used to Texas, cover yeah. everything. And especially we're only, what, 600, 700, 700 some odd feet above yeah. sea level. You can find signs of it in Texas everywhere. Oh, everywhere. But the other thing is the person who made me notice the ocean was uh, Rachel Carson, uh, mm-hmm. that everyone knows from uh, Silent Spring, which I actually haven't read yet. Yeah, I <laughs> but I, I, I read her book, uh, The Sea Around Us, which was a bestseller in 1950. And it talks about um, the formation of the planet and the formation of the oceans, and then the oceans through geological time. And she is such a beautiful writer, such a visual writer, that that stuck with me. I read that book in 2010. And when we went to New England for a year and a half, I started uh, working out of, you know, from my memory of of that book, Mm -hmm. and the other books that I started reading on the ocean. And that's what really uh, propels the work. But Rachel Carson, it turns out, I read recently, uh, didn't spend a lot of time in the ocean. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> she was a shore person. So she lived on the shore in Maine, but she didn't get out and go diving and traveling on the ocean yeah. and studying the ocean from that point of view. Interesting. Yeah. I'm wondering also from your history of different jobs that you've had, if there's anything else that you have memories about or that were formative as far as like, you know, being a professor of art, being a curator, being an arts writer and a critic, being an arts administrator. Actually, it was the uh, my job, all of my jobs at School 33 Arts Center in Baltimore Okay, uh, that was very formative for me. We were dealing with contemporary art of the time, and it was an artist-run space. So it had a, a very different... It just had very interesting art coming through it, and we kept expanding. I kept expanding the programs. I brought in an independent film series, so we were watching Stan Brackage and all, all sorts of things from early on uh, in the 60s. And there were artists who would come and give lectures and arts administ- uh, curators who would come and give be part of panel discussions it was a really lively and wonderful period of time hmm. um what years were those uh that was uh 84 to 90 or something like that uh but what i also loved about it was that the building itself had such a great history. It was School 33 for the city of Baltimore until the late 70s when a new school was built, a modern school. This was a Victorian brick building. Mm -hmm. And so the classrooms were, geez, I want to say 450 feet, 
each. They were huge. Hmm. They were huge spaces, 500 feet each. And there were nine of them. And we rented them out to artists for a nominal fee, $150 for Hmm. a huge space. And you basically had the studio for a year or two years and then gave somebody else the opportunity to have that space. So people could have their studios open during openings or not, you know. And there was um, an education program downstairs, which is how I started there, teaching in that education program. And they had that education program because when that building became available, the city asked for proposals for what to do with that building. So they got proposals for a medical space and um, and the art space. And the South Baltimore community, which was a poor white community at that time, voted on what they wanted. And they voted for an art space because it was something they didn't have. Mm-hmm. So that uh, we had a free walk-in program every Wednesday for neighborhood kids. And um, I liked very much the social aspects of the program as well, which were in place by the time, you know, when it became School 33 Art Center. Mm-hmm. And what were the different jobs you did there? I started as uh, teaching, and I taught kids as well as adults, and uh, it was really fun to teach kids, actually. I was asked to apply for education coordinator when that job became open, and it was perfect. It was 20 hours a week with insurance, and then you had time to do the studio. Then the assistant director job came open, and I got promoted to that, and then the director job came open, and I got promoted to that as well, Mm -hmm. so it was it was really interesting. And during that time, were you creating your own art? Yes, I was. But after the education coordinator job, they were all full time. Ah, yeah. And I had a wonderful studio in Fells Point, And I would go to it both days that I was off Sunday and Monday. And Sunday, I'd go there in the afternoon. And, you know, it, I was just so tired. I just remember sitting in the chair and looking at everything and not having an ounce of energy to Mm. work. And it, it, um, you know, sometimes I just take a nap and then get up and, and work. So, um, so I would try and work on those days off, but it's a rough thing to work seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Because as an arts administrator, I was out in the evenings going to openings and um, being part of the art community there as well. Uh, my husband would wait until 9 o'clock to have dinner, which was incredibly nice of him. Yeah. He's been really a trooper yeah. all these years. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have a supportive partner, for sure, Yeah, for an artist. Maybe we could just touch on for a moment teaching art history. I mean, I, I'm really interested in art history, and I'm just wondering mm-hmm. how that informs what you do, or where do you think the role of art history is in an artist's life? Those museum labels at the Metropolitan especially in the 1960s, were so terrific. I feel like a lot of my art history came from all of the museum viewing that Mm -hmm. I did. Um, We did move to the Chicago area, and I just hop on the train and go to the Art Institute. That also is a wonderful encyclopedic collection. So the museums have been incredibly important in my learning from an early, early age. And then when I was at the Maryland Institute, I took as much art history as I could because I loved it. I unfortunately took enough so that I qualified to to teach. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> but because I, uh, that was not the field in which I got my degree, I, I would work kind of obsessively at it because I felt like I wasn't an uh, art historian. Yeah. And uh, so during that time period, which was almost five years, I really made very little art. You know, because I was working many, many hours on 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 the art history. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know how to make it easier on myself and the students as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just I think about art history in the way that Charles Hepner was talking about knowing which conversation that potentially your work might be a part of or what you want to add to the conversation. And I just I don't know. I feels daunting to me to think about like trying to wrap my head around contemporary art and try to understand which conversation I'm a part of. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that or advice? It's like if I'm doing a certain kind of work, then how do I then proceed and to kind of understand the context of what I'm doing or how, what conversation am I a part of potentially? I think the important thing to do is to keep doing the work and eventually that will take care of itself. Hmm. You know, in, in my case, from loving being in nature and painting nature uh, at the Maryland Institute, uh, there were all those decades until I hit the ocean again, when nature was not a part of the equation. Mm. And I think during that period of time, I was more focused on what was going on inside hmm. and uh, and that's something that one resolves over life over a lifetime i like very much that my subject is outside of myself now i feel at peace with myself hmm. and i don't feel like i have those issues to work out like i did in my 30s i love that the subject matter is now about the larger world and not about my interior world uh, it connects to my interior world because that's the most those two things are are the most important things to me in my work life yeah I'm wondering also how being an arts writer and a critic fits into the whole thing and what what was that like doing that kind of work I was surprised how close writing was to painting hmm. I was really surprised by that. I developed a way of looking at the art. Uh, when I worked at School 33, I remember sometimes there would be artists who had like such a good story about their work. But then when you looked at the work, you didn't get that story from the work. Hmm. Uh, it was maybe more chaotic or, or something. And so I learned to trust my eye and my instincts before words mm. through that job. So when I started writing, I eventually I quickly developed a process. And my process there was that I would go into an art exhibit and I would go around and look at everything before I took any notes. That's kind of like getting your canvas going right yeah. or, or even before you read any artist statements or anything too or? yeah i guess i i might have read a, a press release but, but yes before i yeah. read okay. uh, the deeper part that organizations would have about mm -hmm. the work uh then i would go around and i would take notes from the work then i would the third process would be then i would start reading about the work 
but I wanted to have my own impression first. And then when I took notes, I got deeper into the into what I was looking at. And it developed what I was looking at. And then you read what's written about it, and you see, gee, does that gel with what it is that I'm looking at? Or, oh, my gosh, I hadn't noticed that. That's so interesting. There it is right there, you mm. know. So uh, it could be really informative uh, as well and take me to a third place. Then when I'd get home, you know, usually I didn't, start writing right away. Maybe there was, you know, the next day I'd start writing. Um, when I wrote about it, then then I had whole other ideas start, you know, gelling mm. in there too. So it was kind of like making a painting where, you know, what do you do with that white surface? Well, let's get it messed up and, you know, let's get something on there and then react to that. Mm. And then, you move it along and, oh, no, that's really nice, but I got to take that out of there because it doesn't go with the rest of this, (laughs) you know, or it's stopping me from getting to something else. And so really the writing process was so interesting Mm. that way. It was very much like working a painting. Yeah. I'm just wondering what kind of questions are you asking yourself when you're looking at work like that, when you're kind of doing your first couple passes, like... Did you have kind of like a standard set of questions that you're kind of asking? Like, no, I think I was listening more than asking mm. questions. I mean, when I'm when I'm first looking at stuff, I'm taking it in. I'm not judging. You know, sometimes questions can be um, be the result of having a specific idea that you want things to fit into. Yeah. And what I wanted was to get a. Uh, looking at the work for the first time, just a fresh take on the work. Yeah. For myself as well, I I didn't care who it was. I would do this with large museum shows too. It was important for me to go through. I didn't want to hear anything that anybody had to say about it. I I wanted to just go th- take that walk through first. Yeah, it seems like if you had two specific questions, those might be tied to the way that you always relate to the world or relate to work. And it seems like if you would go into it more open, maybe even looking at work that you don't know how to relate to, you there'd be more potential for you to find something in it. And sometimes I, I wouldn't get it until I got to the written part. Uh, to the part that the organization or institution uh, would would give me. And then it was like, wow, this is interesting. I'm learning something from this. And it's not to say that I certainly had my own set of formed ideas that influenced everything yeah. that I wrote about. You know, I came from a very different, highly developed arts community in the Northeast, for you know 40 years there Austin was a much smaller town when I was writing in the 90s and Mm -hmm. there was a lot it's so active now it's so full of energy Mm. and uh when I was first here you know it felt like there were two two openings a month would be a lot yeah right (laughs) now there's like four six a week you know it's just very active now and 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 it was fun then uh, but it's it's fun now in a different kind of a way. There's a larger dialogue now. And the work that was here in the 90s, were, um, the artists are 
incredibly well known now, and they were formed by Texas. And what I found interesting was that the formation here in Austin seemed to really come from, in a funny way, in part from folk art, uh, as much as from the art world. Writing and talking were also really important. Uh, Austin's a big writing town. His wonderful writers in town. What I would hear would be how people would have conversations that were entertaining and uh, fun. And uh, people told me about the history of Texas when there were a lot less people here. You know, you'd see somebody and uh, talk on the porch, and it might be the only person you'd see, like, all day long, you know, except Mm -hmm. for your family. So um, people were very, very entertaining in a very different way than I was used to. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in the Northeast, it's, uh, it's, it's fun too, you know, but it's, they're, they're just different topics. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what would you say then is the genesis of the work that you're doing now? I think all the work that I've been doing, certainly since I came to Texas in 93, uh, come out of my painting journals, mm-hmm. which started in, um, 92. I was in between the first and second year of graduate school. And I read this wonderful biography of Frida Kahlo by Hayden Herrera. And about three quarters of the way through, there's uh, one image of uh, and a page and a half on uh, Frida's sketchbooks. And there's one image of Frida, there are blots in the background, ink blots in the background. It's just an ink drawing. And uh, this incredibly loose portrait of uh, Frida Kahlo. And in in my mind, I feel like she was levitating or or something like that. She didn't feel tied to the earth somehow in in my recollection, which can be completely wrong. (laughs) And... um, but it was it was like I looked at that and I thought, oh my God, I don't have anything like that. And uh, what they wrote about it was that the surrealists had uh, come to Mexico. Frida and, and Diego were friends with them, and uh, Andre Breton had just said, "Throw." Now I could remember this wrong too, but the gist of it was just throw down some ink blots and see what happens. And I, I, that's where I started the journals. I went out and I got the biggest journal I could and I used both pages and threw down ink blots and started just experimenting in there and just making things with no judgment, <laughs> no judgment, no expectation of the outcome. Right. And it became quickly, it became my free zone. I mean, Mm. how many of us have a free zone? Right. What it did, what it started doing was that uh, it would connect my hand and my eye right away. Within 10 minutes, I'd be in studio work uh, because I'd start working in those journals first thing every time I walked in the studio. Mm. And I'd, I'd paint it until it got wet, and then I'd put it aside, and then I'd uh, go on with the rest of my oil paintings or whatever I was doing at the time. Like a warm-up. It was like a warm-up, but it did something more profound. It let the outside world completely recede in 10 minutes. Mm. And 
I've heard people talk, artists talk over the years about how it takes two hours to stop thinking about this or... You know, Phil, Philip Guston talked about it in another wonderful book, The Night Studio, by his daughter, uh, Musa uh, Mayer. He talked about his friends visiting during the day, and he would work in his studio at night, and his friends would leave. And then he'd carry on the conver- He'd be working in the studio, but he'd be carrying on those conversations with his friends until about midnight. And he said, and then everybody would get up and leave, and it would just be the work. Mm -hmm. And so to be in that zone, it puts me in the zone in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful thing. I'm really grateful for it. And a lot of your work has come from these experiments too. Yes, they have. The uh, body drawings that I did in the 90s while I was uh, doing art criticism for the statesman came from a a quick drawing that I had done, I think, in volume three. And um, in those, I wanted the art to have primacy, the visual to have primacy over words. So I would start out writing with a bamboo, uh, bamboo brush and ink, but I would blur it out so that you couldn't read the words. Mm -hmm. So those patterns, the word and image were one, but the visual was the important, the visual experience was the important part in the studio. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the painting journals are a pretty integral part of your process. Yes. Or have been for a long time. Yes, although during the time that I was teaching art history, you know, I would not work and I, I just didn't do very much work at all. So there are huge gaps in um, the continuity. And then what has happened is that there have been other things that I'll work on when I come in uh, right away. And those take the place, they do exactly the same thing. So uh, the the journals have been uh, less a part of my starting uh, mm. in the studio as other things in the studio have developed, but they're still really important to me. Often, uh, I'll start with gluing things in that are memories of something that mattered to me, and those all get pretty much painted over. But I, I still bring things in and glue them in and uh there are days that i start off with that but sometimes i'll come in and the uh, yesterday was so strong i've just got to go right back to where where i was i've got to just like keep doing that sometimes the force of working just propels you right into the larger work i'm wondering you mentioned a couple times like the normal struggle of maybe having to work a full-time job and still having a studio practice, still being an artist. Like I I think about artists that are in that position that have to work and have a family. And how do you, how do you think about that? Do you have any advice for those kinds of artists or like if someone like feels the drive to be an artist, but they're just, as you did struggle to have the energy or the time, you know, even if they have a studio, they might just, take a nap or something, you know, like, I, you know, I think finding something that you can do in an hour or a half an hour is incredibly important so that you keep it as a part of your day. 
as an important part of your day, and you don't lose the thread. Mm -hmm. Uh, Losing the thread is something that happens uh, to me if I'm in a a body of work, and then uh, other things come up, and I have to turn my attention, and I come back two months later, and I can't pick up that thread again because life has changed, I have changed, the work has changed without my knowing it. And so not losing that thread and keeping that thread active gives you uh, a fighting chance for doing art for a lifetime. Mm. Uh, Because through a lifetime, you're noticed and you're not noticed. You're going to have to make the work because you love to make it. But keeping that thread going also builds a kind of energy that keeps you propelled in your work when you get to your work, when you get to the larger work work because all of the work matters uh i think i today this is in in graduate school to loosen me up uh, a professor told me to take a small canvas they were five by seven something like that smear it with paint and then draw into it as a warm-up for a painting and I did that for my two years of graduate school. And um, actually, the paintings came from diary drawings uh, that I did every day. He also told me to do, you know, like 10 fast drawings a day. Mm-hmm. And they were they were all kind of psychologically oriented and things that happened in, um, in life and responses to that, because that was that period of time. So you have a solo show at the end of your second year, and one of the pieces in there was a nine-foot-high, 14-foot-wide piece that was made up of five-by-seven paintings, diary Mm. paintings. And so they were like all over the, you know, they were in rows. Yeah, Uh, a grid. Yeah, yeah, but it was, you know, nine feet high and 14 feet long, and that's what I did for 10 minutes for two years. So it can... These small things can add up, and they can make something larger that is interesting all itself that you didn't imagine when you started. So that's part of the process for me. I don't have these expectations for the work. I just do the work and see where the work leads me. And I think keeping that thread going is is the most important thing. Yeah, it makes me think of Charles Hepner's daily creative hygiene. It's very similar to your journals. Yeah. In a way. There's a reason why we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Great minds think alike. I guess, well, why don't we talk about the ocean then and your work that addresses the ocean and the buffer zones and, and just your, you know, how you use weather, salt crystals, water, paints, inks, time-lapse photography, heat, cold, elements, chance, time, all these aspects and how you create your work now. Let's maybe talk about that, your current work. Yeah, those are all really important (laughs) to me. Uh, And the process of making them important uh, in in my life also. And how you Um, discovered them, maybe. Well, uh they became values that I, I I didn't want just sitting on a shelf. I wanted them active in the work. And with the journals, they, they were active in the work and probably grew out of that too. Uh, but this studio 
is beautiful, but it's always felt too small for me. I like working large. So I started working larger to fill the walls of the studio as best I could with larger works. Uh, I had to start working out in the driveway. And what was wonderful was uh, that Texas gets so hot, it makes completely different salt shapes when it's 100 degrees out mm-hmm. or, or in the 90s. So I like working in the elements. Um, Maybe describe your salt work for someone that has no knowledge of what you do at all, well, just from scratch. like. Well, I can describe how I make them. Basically, I make a hypersaturated salt solution in water. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, draw or paint with it, whatever you want to call it. And and I'll have a subject that I'm working on. It used to be uh, one of the series was heat exchange. Uh, so the heat exchange is the heat of the sun hitting the, o- the colder ocean. And that begins making waves. It begins making motion. Mm. Uh, It certainly makes wind, which also builds the waves. So it's learning about those sorts of things that then has uh, some expression in the work. Uh, For the heat part, I would use Himalayan sea salt, which is pink, and then white sea salt for for the water uh, in my mind. And so I would draw, I just draw with this hypersaturated solution and let the water evaporate and the sea salt crystals just grow in whatever form they want to grow. Mm. So that's where uh, an element of chance comes in. Um, so I'm drawing on paper. And sometimes it's painted paper, or sometimes it's black paper, depending on what the motivation of the work is. When they dry, I then start responding to what they did overnight. Mm. Sometimes I'll leave it to dry. Whether If it's inside, I started doing this in Providence. I, I would leave my studio and come back the next day. And I would think it would just gonna it was just gonna be a bust. It was gonna be awful and it ended up being like just so gorgeous. I couldn't oh, believe wow. that what I had left there looked like it was gonna tank hmm. and I would throw it out and it, it just didn't do that. Um it rare it rarely does that. So once the salt crystals have grown and uh I I will keep working them. Some of the time, depending on what they're doing, uh, I'll keep working with the image. And sometimes I'll paint around it afterwards as well. Once the piece is finished, uh, it's made up of different size salt crystals. Uh, Some are much larger where the water has pooled. Uh, Some are much uh, smaller. Some are whiter. Some are grayer. That is completely chance. And some are glassier. Uh, sometimes that'll happen, and sometimes they'll be white. The large crystals mm. will be white. It's uh, There's a lot of chance, but I've also learned in working with it that certain things will happen, and so I can guide the image in that way as well. But there's always an element of chance in there. How does it feel giving over that control, I guess, in a way? Oh, I love it. I think much better things happen for me when I leave things open 
and let other things happen. If I control it, it's always a much smaller end product or, Mm. you know, whatever happens will be smaller uh, than if I can leave it open. And of course, I, I have to go back and forth with that all the time. You know, I'm not perfect at that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But that's my goal. (laughs) Right. So. So maybe talk more about the ocean and the buffer zones and kind of the, I mean, is the work motivated by these issues around nature and global warming or? The buffer zones show at the Fort Worth Community Arts Center has been a terrific move forward for me. The walls there are really large. Uh, They're all 10 foot tall. One is 40 feet and one is 27 feet. And then the three others are eight foot Mm -hmm. (laughs) or eight and a half feet. And so I wanted to, what I proposed for them was to make work based on the buffer zones of the ocean, which there are three buffer zones, coral reefs, giant kelp forests, and mangrove uh, forests, roots, really. The roots are underwater uh, half the day. The tide will come in and out. And so when they're underwater, they're this incredible, incredibly fertile ecosystem for uh, for fish and marine life. When the tides go out, because the trees live in brackish water, uh, there's silt that forms. And so that silt is so fine that uh, the soil has no oxygen in it or little oxygen in it. So all of these roots, these amazing root systems that ended up in the show, breathe air in when the tide is out, Hmm. Uh, that they, that's their breathing for the tree, they're adding oxygen to the to the tree. So those three buffer zones, two of them are endangered. Neither one was necessarily in, uh, they were endangered, but it wasn't happening yet when I started working on the ocean in 2013. So in 2000, uh, 1516, the coral reefs started really going. Mm. Uh, The Great Barrier Reef outside of uh, Australia started collapsing. Uh, I think a third of it was gone at least a couple of years ago. I'm I'm not sure how much more has gone since then. But since 2016, the giant kelp forests in different parts of the world have started collapsing also. Uh, So I ended up, I did want to make some pretty huge uh, giant kelp forests because they grow to 200 feet high. But I ended up focusing on uh, the mangrove roots for various reasons. They're amazing primeval trees. I believe they were around before human beings. They're an ecosystem that does not really welcome human beings. We don't do well in there with all the tigers and the snakes and yeah. and the curvy, wervy things that make it hard for us to move through those forests. I find that fascinating because now with climate change, we're destroying so much of our way of life has culminated in destroying so much Uh, life in the world. Mm -hmm. So the mangrove forests uh, actually absorb 10 times the carbon that terrestrial trees absorb. There is some anecdotal evidence that uh, they may 
have a small part to play in um, balancing the acidification of of the ocean. Uh, Of course, they're not all over the 70% of the globe to help the entire ocean. But but they they felt like uh, positive things that could adapt in some kind of a way because we're going to have to adapt in some kind of a way as well. When I was growing up in Croton, uh, the Hudson River was horribly polluted from all of these paper mills that had been upstate mm-hmm. and just dumped stuff in the ocean. And we never thought that that would get better. With uh, environmentalists working on it, uh, the river is really in pretty good shape now. So I think we just, you know, for me, I think this is an incredibly depressing subject, but we have to spend our time mourning the world as we knew it, and then move on and see what we can do so that we can hang on to as much as we can and try to try to reverse anything that we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of this is just little habitual changes that we can make in our own in our own lives, and everyone has to find their own way to do it. There's no one way to do it. And so this, the work of the mangrove roots that's going to be in a show up in Fort Worth, what do you hope to accomplish, or what do you feel like you've accomplished by creating this work? I think that it is art all on its own, that you can just go and experience the show and see some images that are unusual for me. I don't yeah. know. Maybe they're not for you, but uh, but uh, I, I'm very uh, pleased with the work that I've that I've made for that show, and I can't wait to get back to work because I've got a lot more things I want to do uh, mm. from that. I'm not done at all. Uh, what was so exciting was that I, I started keeping a, a book on salt things that were happening because I was working at that scale. So there are about six things that I want to start playing with in other pieces now that are part of the process of making the work. Mm. So the work always informs me as well. That's what I like about it being out of my control. I can keep learning. Mm. Um, And there are some larger pieces that I want to make that uh, I'd love to put back on that 40-foot wall, but... (laughs) yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but there'll be other 40-foot walls, I hope, in the future. But, well, the other part of it is that it gave me a chance to have some information on the side uh, about climate change. Mm. Um, the show is about the buffer zones, uh, but what motivated me to make the work was everything that I was reading about the ocean that was connected to climate change. So it's an opportunity to open that up for people to think about it in in their own lives if they want to. They can Mm -hmm. come in and just look at the work. uh, Or if they read a little further, there'll be um, just uh, what we're talking about here, about the effects of climate change and um, thoughts about what we could do about it ourselves. Um, On the 26th, July 26th, I'll be giving a short artist talk. I'm hoping that there will be a scientist or uh, other professional academic who uh, will be able to talk about climate change as well. 
So it's the ocean that's been teaching me about climate change because while it seems not to be happening as predicted, it is happening very rapidly in the ocean, very rapidly. And uh, when you stop to think that the coral reefs alone feed a quarter of uh, the marine life in the world and they're struggling and dying, that means a quarter of the marine life will go as well. And uh, with climate change, so much of what happens is the variety of species becomes much, much smaller. There's so many effects, but let's not get depressed. Yeah. Totally. Because that will keep us from doing anything. So like you said, with your art, there is in and of itself just the beauty of the work that doesn't necessarily have to do with buffer zones or anything. It's like you can go in and see the work and yeah, appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, and it's it's based on buffer zones. And um, one of the things that I really do love about the salt is that as you it, it glitters, parts of it glitter. As you move in the work, the light travels with you, whereas in paintings, uh, if I had stayed with traditional landscape, the light would have been set mm. in it. And I just love that it, it it's nothing I planned. It's just part of what the salt offers mm-hmm. as well. And I'm not sure what it is, but people react to the salt in a very primal way. Mm. There's something, we're made of salt and water, and that's what the work is made of. And for some reason, people just go into that nonverbal zone there for a short period of time. Hmm. It's nice to see. Yeah, no doubt. What are you looking forward to? I know you had mentioned some phenomenon that you discovered as you were creating this large work that you want to kind of pursue a little bit more. But like, what else are you looking forward to? Or just general optimism about being an artist or life that you've kind of discovered or developed at this stage in your existence? (laughs) Well, what I love is that I haven't finished making even the mangrove forest work. Work in a series keeps generating more work. So even though the show is happening, I've got to get back out there and make uh, more of this work uh, Mm -hmm. with the different ideas uh, that I have, as well as the phenomena that you were talking about. That's a great way of phrasing it. But I I think in general, for me, work is, it's... uh, Learning about the world through reading, which I love, and then bringing that into my studio, forgetting conscious thought and making the work, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The work this time really surprised me when I first started making some of the buffer zone work. It was like, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> like that piece over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't put it all in the show either. That one's called Eek because it's it's like surprised and that's a response to climate change also, isn't it? It's like, oh my God, you're kidding. We did that? Yeah, yeah, Eek. <laughs> so um, I just love learning from the work and just leaving it open and learning. It's part of my being in the world. I I try to be patient with myself and my artwork. I mean, there were years where it felt like it didn't connect to the larger art world. But 
I just had to keep working. And I think you never know what's coming unless you keep working, unless you keep that thread going. I think developing as a person uh, is is a part of what goes into the work. Uh, who you are and what you think about and uh, what's important to you is is what comes out in the work whether you want it to or not. So I think just the important thing is to keep that thread going. Yeah, I actually think about that in relation to this podcast too because I feel like... <laughs> If I think about myself that way, or if you think about yourself that way as being of service in a sense by what you're doing, like you're trying to add something positive to the world, add some value to the world, create some art, create a conversation. It's like the more, the better you take care of yourself, the better you eat, the more you read, the more you spend time with your friends, all the things that you can do to make yourself a better person or a happier person or healthier person, that's going to come out in whatever you create. So I just think of if I want to be of service through what I create, then it's my responsibility to be the best person that I am to produce the best possible outcome. Well, I think that gets to the core of it is the core of the making the work and um, being alive, there's energy. And it's what kind of energy do you put out there? And you've described it beautifully, that uh, when you focus on positive things, you really change the energy in the world around you. And that's all we can do. We can't necessarily go out and change uh, the political structure or the economic structure or where nature is in the in the world. And nature doesn't really care where we are. We're just a little part of it. Yeah. And it's going to adapt and change, and it's not going to cry because there are less creatures in the world. But it does matter to us, and so we need to just try and make it the best place we can make it. I think curiosity also, I think that's the one thing that I haven't really mentioned, but curiosity, I think, just keeps opening doors. It's it's a wonderful thing to have, and it helps teach us, too. It helps us learn. Yeah. Yeah, I think being curious and humble <laughs> is another important part, too. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate what you do. I really feel like you're forming a document of Austin artists and the art community. And uh, it's really a wonderful gift. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you for being a part of it. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.